All right, team, welcome back to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. Joining me today is Mr. Coleman Hughes, who is a writer, podcaster, and opinion columnist who specializes in issues related to race, public policy, and applied ethics. His writing has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, National Review, Quillette, The City Journal, and countless, countless others. He has appeared on many TV shows, podcasts, including Real Time with Bill Maher, Making Sense with Sam Harris, and the Jordan B. Peterson podcast. So Coleman and I, as you can only imagine, are going to talk about politics a little bit. We're going to talk about what's happening in the divided states of America. We are going to get a little bit into what's happening within the political landscape, how things like CRT and race fit into the conversation. Coleman has a very, what I would say, balanced view. He's got a very uh, interesting and diverse background. Uh, He was a jazz and and hip-hop artist in in his past and actually went on to uh, study applied ethics and public policy at Columbia University, where he graduated with a BA in philosophy. So he's got a tremendous amount of experience. So we're going to be talking about what's happening in the United States between the Democratic and Republican Party how race, ethics, morality fits into the whole equation. And uh, I hope that you really enjoy this conversation as as much as I did. He has a a wonderful perspective. Uh, We talk about how the center of the political landscape has begun to collapse and many other topics. So thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to man it forward and share this episode. And without any further delay, please welcome Coleman Hughes. All right, Coleman, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good so far. How are you? I'm good. So far, so I could wreck your day is what you're saying. Yes, <laughs> yes. My life is in your okay. hands right now. That's, that's right. That's right. The steering wheel, the driver's seat of the interviewer. Well, listen, man, it's, a, it's an honor to have you on the show. I've checked out a bunch of your content over the last several months and really enjoyed listening to your interview style. I feel like I've learned a good amount of you know how... I like studying other interviewers because everybody has their own style. Mm -hmm. And something that I took for granted in the beginning of podcasting was I just sort of showed up and had a convo with people and that seemed to work well. And Mm. it still works well a little bit, but I've definitely started to gain some insight into what other people are doing that makes them exceptional in their conversation. You have a very, you're like cool hand Luke. That's the best way I could describe it on your show. You have this like very cool hand Luke approach and you're like very stoic and centered and grounded. It makes for a very fruitful conversation, especially around some topics that are very charged in our modern culture right now in the mm. modern conversation. So I just wanted to say thank you to the, to you for that. And thank then, you for that compliment. I, I don't think I, cool hand Luke is that movie where the guy is working on a chain gang and then it has this whole crazy experience, right? Is that? I don't even know the movie. I just know the reference that he's like super stoic. So I've actually, right. I've actually never seen the movie. Cool I, th- I think I, I could be thinking of a wrong movie, but he's, he's at some point he's working on a chain gang in prison. And then he just, you know, like everything he does seems to just go right. And he's kind yeah. of a badass in that sense. But he's, yeah, but he he's also like very, is quite stoic. Yeah. So I might yeah. have the stoicism without the everything going right automatically part. Without the badassery? Is that because mm-hmm. I was kind of picturing like a Clint Eastwood style, you know? I think there's even a scene in that movie where he, he just he gets into some kind of impossible eating competition. 
where he has to eat. I don't know what it is that they're eating. It's like hot dogs or, oh no, eggs. It's, it was, it's eggs. And if he eats huh. like a hundred eggs, he gets some insane Ooh. prize. And it starts out as a joke, but he actually does it. Well, if I'm, I'm going to I may be thinking now. of a totally wrong movie here, but someone has to tell me what movie I'm thinking of. We're going to have comments on the, on the YouTube. Uh, yeah. Screaming version. at me for being uh, an idiot. Yeah. Well, and, and people giving me a hard time for using a reference for a movie that I haven't seen. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that's definitely, that's definitely coming. All right. Well, I'm going to start with how I start every conversation, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Mm. Okay. So I, I think if I were to choose one moment that made me who I am today or that influenced me deeply, it would be probably the death of my mother when I was 18. It was, I was, uh, maybe five or six months into my first year at the Juilliard Jazz School as a trombone major and set on becoming a musician, which had been my passion throughout high school. Uh, My mom had cancer and eventually passed away and it had a huge impact on me because I I really just, I, I couldn't understand how someone, how someone can sort of do everything right in life and still suffer for years and then die at the height of their suffering. It's like mm-hmm. when someone is, is a chain smoker, as sad as them dying from lung cancer is, it wouldn't, it wouldn't upset my worldview. It wouldn't, you know, the lesson there would just be, well, shit, I'm not going to start smoking. I never want to, I never want that to happen to me. So I'm not going to smoke, mm-hmm. right? The, the lesson might be that simple. But when someone is, you know, a health nut like my mom was and, and does everything right and nevertheless just suffers and dies at, you know, in, in her mid fifties, it had a massive impact on me because, you know, I began to think, well, what, what the hell is the point of all of this? If you can just do everything right and then, uh, and then, and then die in, in, in the way that she did. And it sent me into um, a series, a, a kind of radical doubt about my own life path and what I wanted to do in life and who I wanted to be and what the point of it all is. So I ended up dropping out of school and just reading lots of philosophy. And you know, by the time I was ready to go back to school, I figured you know, the only thing I could really do was to major in philosophy or religion because those are the only two majors where you're allowed to ask the kinds of questions that I was now interested in. So, mm. so I ended up pivoting in a major way and that pivot has had a large impact on the trajectory of my career. And that's when I ended up going to Columbia majoring in philosophy and uh, well, I'll stop the story there, but that, that moment had a big impact. Would you, is it fair to say that moment made you question where you derive meaning from in life and, and sort of a pursuit of meaning? Or how would you say that uh, the def- death of your mother altered your trajectory? Because there's the outward alteration of, you know, moving away from dropping out of jazz school and, and pursuing a different career. But was that a part of it or is there something else underlying that transition? Yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a- questions about meaning, but it was also, you know, I think 
to some degree, lots of people are living for their parents mm. or, or at the very least what their parents expect of them is, is a big fixture in their mind for, for decades. And for me, my mom was really the one whose expectations of me mattered the most, right? She was the one who, you know, I really wanted to please and suddenly she was just gone, right? So suddenly I had to confront younger than I think most people, the gap between what living for her meant and what living for me meant. And I think that was also, that, that was also an interesting part of it for me. It's like, how many of your decisions are done for your parents? Mm-hmm. Well, one way to find out is for your, your parent to die and then you to just no longer, you know, the part of you that wanted to please her essentially dies because she's not around to be pleased or, or, or upset, right? And then suddenly you mm-hmm. confront what you would want to do if, if, if you were really just living for you and the way you want to live. And so that was a big part of it too. You know, it's, it's interesting because, do you know who Richard Reeves is? I think you've had him on your show. Yeah, I actually Richard know him Reeves. personally. Yeah. Yeah. So I had him on my show recently and this question of defining moment has brought up, he shared a story of losing his sister mm-hmm. and his sister passing away and it being this sort of monumental alteration in, in his life and really made him question things. And it's fascinating how, how much more recently people have been answering this question with a, a death of a loved one. I, I interviewed a former male porn star yesterday and his, his response is almost similar to yours is that he, the death of his mother sent him on a very different trajectory. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how death can be this constant in our lives that brings us together and sort of creates this human questioning of why am I here and what should I do? And, you know, the expectations that I had of myself are previously no longer there. And um, I shared with him that my my mom is actually going through that right now. So she's mm-hmm. got stage four cancer and she's terminal. Sorry about that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And so, I, you know, I think it's, it's been bringing up a lot of those questions of like, what conversations do I want to have? And uh, what time do I want to spend with her? And how does that look? Cause we look, we live very far apart. And so I don't want to spend too much time here. It's, it's mostly just an observation because it, yeah, I had this other gentleman on my show, Stephen Jenkinson, who talked about how we live in a very death phobic culture and that our culture has sort of like removed and, and separated death from our everyday lives. I'm curious just to sort of maybe pause there for a second before we move into politics and all the other stuff that we're going to talk about. Do you agree with that sentiment that, that we've sort of extracted death out of the cultural conversation? It doesn't really have a place. And then all of a sudden when it shows up, it's, it's quite jarring for us. Yeah, I, th- I think we have. I think at least two other trends could be seen as causing that. One is the general secularization of our society, right? If you're, if you're Jewish, you have the tradition of sitting Shiva and, um, you know, there may be analogous traditions in other religions where you just, you basically have a cultural script of how to confront death in a way that isn't avoiding it. Mm. Secular people, we don't have necessarily that, that cultural script. I mean, we have funerals, but that's not quite the same thing. And then secondly, I think we no longer live in three-generation households or communities, which used to be much more common to have the grandparents living with the parents living with the grandkids. 
And that's mm-hmm. still extremely common in places like Japan. And uh, I think, I think maybe more common in a place like Israel too, but in America, it's, it's just receded. So part of our being farther from death is a consequence of our being farther from old age. Yeah. And it, it seems like part of our culture is just like this atomization that seems to be happening where we're getting further away from friends, from family, from elders, from, I mean, just others in general, mm-hmm. you know, I think in, in the way where we're not in proximity with people in the same way that not even necessarily that we quote unquote used to be, but I think we're not necessarily in proximity in the way that we almost need to be. I think from a psychological standpoint, there's a good amount of research to back that you know, the quality of your relationships is arguably one of the most important elements of our lives as human beings. And those seem to be disintegrating quite rapidly. So we'll probably touch on this as we go through this conversation. I wanted to have you on the show for a number of reasons. I've never really talked about politics on my show. I'm a Canadian and so my, you know, my you guys foray, don't have, you don't have politics up there. We don't have any politics. <laughs> it's actually, uh, you know, it's, it's just basically, you know, the Royal Mounted Police and maple syrup and hockey sticks, right? It's like, that's how we, it's how we deal with things. We just helmets and gloves. But I wanted to enter in because I, I've noticed that a lot of the men that interact with me online, that come out to our live weekends, that join our membership, that read my book, that do, like that interact with our company they're asking more and more about politics because it's really affecting and impacting their lives maybe more so than ever. And maybe that's just a perception or maybe it's true. But I wanted to enter into this conversation because becoming a father recently, I found myself thinking about this quite a bit more than I had before. You know, politics was sort of something that was on the back burner and I would pay attention to, but it really didn't, you know, it wasn't something that I necessarily gave a shit about. Um, just to be candid, it just wasn't something that I, I necessarily cared about. But having been in the States for the last five years, it's almost impossible to not get dragged into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys are like, a, it's like a, going to like a WWE match where you can, you can enter into the, into the ring, you know, it's, it's pretty wild. But I've thought about the future and things with my son and the world that he's going to grow up in. And I find myself getting more and more curious about this. So I really want to come at this conversation as the novice and the student that I am. I I really don't know a ton about, I mean, I know some about American politics and just politics in general, but so let's just start broad and then maybe we can narrow it down. When you look at the political landscape that's happening right now in America, how do you describe what's happening in a sort of clear and succinct way for the average person to, to understand? How would you describe that? Well, I think if you're entering the American political landscape now, one of the most important things to understand is what has changed in the past, say, 20 years. One of the most important trends of the past 20 years in American politics is increasing polarization. And this has many causes. Basically, you know, essentially what this means is just that the right has gone more to the right and the left has gone more to the left. And even more important than that is the fact that people on the right hate people on the left more and people on the left hate people on the right more. And this Mm. is measurably true. There's a lot of research to back this up at this point. 
And I think that's one of the most important facts to understand as a driver of the culture wars and as a, as a difference between America and many other places in the world and as a different difference between America today and America, even when I, I was a kid uh, and I'm not that old. So there are many forces behind this. One was 24-hour cable news. You know, in the 90s, when that first began to be a thing, you saw polarized news and you saw the necessity of having news stories 24 hours a day instead of once on the six o'clock news. And the even bigger driver of polarization has been the internet and social media combined with smartphones. So basically, if you roll the clock back to 2003, the way people got their news was they would read the newspaper every day. Maybe they'd watch the six o'clock news. They'd chat with some friends. It was pretty normal for a Republican to be married to a Democrat. If you went to dinner with a couple that was in that situation, you would not ask them, oh my God, how do you do it? Right? Mm. It it would strike you as pretty normal. Um, If you went out on a first date with someone in 2003, it would not be crazy if they had different politics than you. It would not strike you as a problem. Right? So how is the world different starting in say like 2013? Now everyone has an iPhone in their pocket. Every citizen in the country has become a de facto journalist in the sense that if something goes crazy on my street corner, normally you, Connor, would never hear about it, right? But now I have an iPhone, I'm going to film it. And it's going to get 3 million views on Facebook and be algorithmically boosted into your mind. And the things that get boosted are the things that are most likely to provoke or anger or elicit strong agreement from you. So basically, there's way more content. Everyone is a journalist instead of only a few thousand people being journalists. And every piece of content can get to you instantly with no fact-checking, with no barriers to entry into your mind, basically. And it's algorithmically boosted. And so everyone ends up getting the worst version of what they hate. Mm. And this has caused a massive polarization on both sides. Both sides, this has caused a situation where now... If you're single and dating, I'm sure every, everyone will know this. You're going to swipe on all these profiles that say, you know, if your politics is this way, then fuck off, essentially. Mm-hmm. And if you live in New York, that's going to be one way. If you live in Kansas, that's going to be that's going to be another way. But the trend is the same on both sides. And it's and you meet a couple with different politics and it's like, wow, how do you guys do it? That's the question now. So that's how we've gotten here. It, all, it also seems like the center, I, I, maybe this is just an external perspective, but it also seems like the center is being torn apart. You know, that like to be centrist, to be moderate is like somehow you're the enemy of both sides now. <laughs> like I, I, and maybe that's just a perspective, but I, I've, I've always tried to take, I mean, I studied Taoism and, and Buddhism and there's a concept called the middle way and it stands for many things, but I've always liked this notion of trying to walk a middle way, you know, of understanding both sides of the equation, holding as much as I can towards a center line without getting caught in the rhetoric and the polarization that, you know, is spewed out in the, in the news and, and et cetera. And it, what has been fascinating is to, to walk in the center in today's political landscape is almost like illicit hate and damage from, from both sides. 
Would you say that that's true? What do you think is contributing to that? And then I have some follow-ups about this. Well, I think a lot of people hate moderates because they feel that you're not taking a side. And in some way, some people feel like not taking a side is waffling and is worse than taking the wrong side. So, I mean, I, and I can even empathize with that. I understand, like, there are certain times when you're in some kind of dispute in a group and you'd almost prefer someone to strongly disagree with you than to sort of waffle and like not know what they think and not be able to place them. And I think that that's how some people feel about moderates. Mm. I very much disagree. I think to be a moderate is just to say my political philosophy and instincts do not align well enough with the left or the right. It doesn't mean I'm in the middle on every issue, right? Ideally, it means I'm looking at every issue on its own merits and deciding who is right, right? Like my views on one topic might be very classically left-wing and my views on another topic might be very classically right-wing, right? Mm. Because I'm actually looking at each issue on its own merits and I'm not looking from the perspective of having a team in the fight. If you're a Democrat or a Republican, and there's lots of research on this as well, you can show Democrats a policy and say, do you support this policy? Obama implemented it. And they'll pretty much all say yes. And then you show another group of Democrats the same policy. Do you support it? Trump implemented it. They'll all say, I hate the policy, right? And the Mm -hmm. same is true of Republicans. The problem with partisanship is you don't even know that it's happening, but you are thinking with your party first, not with your brain. And so I think the advantage of being an, a political independent and a moderate is that I approach each issue based on my principles and trying to get to the facts, trying to apply my principles to the facts of the issue. And, and I'm unafraid to join one or the other team on a particular issue. Hmm. I really appreciate that definition because I think, you know, I've, I've thought about if I could vote in, in the states, which... I would feel like I didn't have a political party. I think I'd feel politically homeless because a lot of the stuff that's happening within the Democratic Party and a lot of the stuff that's happening within the conservative party, the Republican Party, just doesn't, I mean, it's, it's just, it feels a bit insane, you know, what's going on. And I think a lot of the people that I've spoken to over the years kind of feel, not everyone, but a lot of people feel like they're in the same boat. It's like, I got to go with the lesser of the two evils, you mm-hmm. know? Let's come back to this polarization conversation because I think this is a very important one. Do you have any kind of hope or pathway for the depolarization of America? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, all I, of our problems. I Coleman. would love to. I would love to say that I do, but the truth is, I don't. I don't really know how we depolarize. The incentives driving polarization are pretty strong and they seem like they're going to remain strong in the near term. So all I can say is, you know, there are organizations trying to fight this trend, make people more aware of it, like Braver Angels run by my friend John Wood. And so I really, it's it's about, you know, one by one people committing to to try to see how partisanship or political tribalism might be affecting you and to try to, you know, if this is something you agree is toxic, to try to correct for it. One way of doing that 
And I'll, I'll give a, a plug to a product that I, I really love and that I plug without getting paid to do is called Ground News, which is um, a website and an app that just collects all the news stories of the day on one topic and ranks them by their right-wing or left-wing bias. Hmm. Uh, and it just takes this from other bias aggregators. And it also presents stories that calls the blind spot feature, stories that the left is not paying attention to and stories that the right is not paying attention to. And it can also score your news diet, right? So like you you may think you're getting a really balanced take on the news and then you may realize, oh my God, my news diet has like a 30% left-wing bias or a 30% right-wing bias, et cetera. So that can be a really useful check on what information you're consuming. Do you think that social media companies should have some restriction or regulation around, or at least some legislation around producing content or how content is distributed that's political in nature to market, to check it? Like, I think we're going to get into maybe uh, censoring and freedom of speech because one of the things that's different about Canada is there's no uh, freedom of speech law. Like it's not, that's not in effect, right? You don't have to have freedom of speech. You don't have to, um, like there's no public gathering. Uh, and so they've started to pass laws in Canada that are a little interesting in terms of infringing on your capacity to gather. They're trying to pass legislation that is going to allow the government uh, to essentially help curate certain content on social media platforms like Netflix so Netflix will have to have like 15% Canadian Canadian content or Canadian produced content. But then, you know, who's, who's saying who's producing that content? So where do you feel like the role of the government versus big tech intersects? And, and how are they, how should we maybe as a country, as individuals or a community try and not alter, but influence the amount of power that either government or big tech companies have. I know it's a very broad and large question, but we'll we'll probably dig down into it. Yeah, it is a it's it's a broad question. I'm not sure that I have all the answers here, but I was I've been upset at the role that the government has played in encouraging social media companies like Twitter and Facebook to label certain things as misinformation and ban people for expressing views that later turn out to be not at all misinformation. I mean, this, it's not censorship per se, because there's no, as far as I know, I don't think Trump or Biden has really made explicit threats on big tech companies. You know, I'm going to destroy you unless you cancel this journalist's account, right? Or at least I haven't seen that anywhere but there have been you know back channels and meetings between government or their twitter is essentially asking the government like who should i ban who should i down regulate mm-hmm. and you know the white house team is giving them names like you know why is this guy still on twitter why is etc and many of those views that they're expressing is like either turn out to be correct or at the very least they're valid takes right they're they're takes that should be Allowed, so I've been quite upset by the role the government has played in policing COVID, quote unquote, misinformation. 
and, and so, but you know, I don't know. I don't know that I can say the government should have no input whatsoever or that these companies should be totally unregulated. I, I wouldn't commit myself to that view either. It's a very tough question for which I don't really have the correct answer. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like everybody's trying to figure out how to maintain a very high level of freedom of speech while still making sure that, you know, certain things that are maybe outright or, or borderline false. Although as you're, as you're talking about in, in many cases, there was things that were getting shut down that, that, you know, came out to be true <laughs> and factually accurate. So it is a bit of an interesting line. What I really wanted to get your take on, and maybe you don't know too much about this topic, but I, I'm, I'm assuming you've probably dug into it, which is how do you feel or think that AI is going to start to impact the political landscape? And are there certain things coming down the pipeline that people should be aware of or start to look out for in terms of AI's influence within how we talk about politics? Mm. So one thing is deep fakes. We've already seen deep fakes circulating, getting millions of views on TikTok. There'll be a deep fake of Elon Musk saying something crazy that would really shake up the world. And then it turns out to be a deep fake. And most of the deep fakes I've seen have still been recognizably fake to me, but they're getting better and better. And I think soon they're going to be so good that it's not it's not going to be obvious that it's a deep fake. Arguably, we're already there. There was um, I was just seeing that I was working out this morning, and a buddy of mine sent me. Uh, they were using deep fakes for ads for certain products, like um, like protein, you know, like whey protein. Yeah, and these guys had created a deep fake of Joe Rogan, and I don't know if it was Musk or somebody else that were basically like endorsing this product, and it looked. Pretty damn good. And it was circulating on TikTok and apparently it, you know, made this company like millions of dollars within a few yeah. days. And it's like, man, can you imagine if that was political in nature, you know, having yeah. a politician advocate for something? So sorry, I just wanted to throw that in. No, I mean it's uh it's a problem because it's possible that a video like that can just circulate and cause an effect in the world before it's able to be debunked. What if there's like I don't know, say there's ethnic violence between Hindus and Muslims on the border of India and Pakistan. And then there's a, a deep fake of Modi saying, you know, go get them. And, and it, it happens before anyone knows that it's a deep fake, right? It's like in situations where time is of the essence, these things could, could really matter. You know, Russia and Ukraine, deep fakes of Putin and Zelensky have already happened. And if they get better, it's going to be tough. But hopefully we will, I think... A lot of people are now concerned about AI safety and a lot of people are working on it. So I expect it to be like any other technology in that it will present threats and we'll deal with them, but it's definitely something to worry about. Yeah. I think the other one was disinformation, like the rate at which you can create disinformation campaigns using artificial intelligence. Cause I've been going down that rabbit hole for a while now. And it's really interesting to see how quickly you can create not only entire campaigns, but websites, copy for the website. I mean, the AI can code the website and you can have things up really, really quickly to make things look legal and accurate when, you know, in fact, they're, they're completely fabricated. What would you say, you know, because there's a lot to sort of be 
alarmed by or, or concerned about within the political landscape from somebody who has sat down with, a, you know, a ton of people over the years, what would you say you are maybe most concerned about when it comes to American democracy right now in 2023? What am I most concerned about? Well, I'm, I'm most concerned about the consequences of polarization, I would say. I won't, I won't rehearse what I said about that before, but just the degree to which each side hates the other is dangerous and, and a dangerous trend to keep moving towards. And, uh, and then, I mean, I think what I worry about is nuclear war. I worry, I worry about, I worry about America losing global dominance to China and the, the knock on effects of having China be the global superpower for the rest of the world. Can we just pause there? Can I tug on that thread a little bit? Can you maybe say a little bit more of how you think that might unfold? Because I've heard a number of people address this in terms of like, you know, the de-dollarization of, you know, the American dollar as being the, the standard global currency, unpegging the, the Chinese yuan from the American dollar. And there's a, there seems to be a lot of controversy around whether or not that would send the Chinese economy spiraling, you know, if the United States has done enough to sort of circumvent the, the, you know, the Chinese superpower from taking over. So what's the sort of pathway that you see as being possible for that happening? And, and maybe what do you think that we need to do in order to circumvent it? Well, that's a good question and in some way beyond my expertise. But I, I know that, you know, I think that the U.S. should have the most powerful military in the world. Not because we're angels, but because we are the best of all the big powers, I would say. And that's a relative term, right? Like we've done horrible things. Uh, But from a human rights perspective, we are better than China and we're better than Russia right now. So we, we we should not be shy about having the strongest military in the world. We should continue to have that. We shouldn't let China usurp that. And I don't think that we should just retreat from the world, right? There's this isolationist tendency that used to be on the left and is now on the right, which basically says, you know, we shouldn't care about what's going on in the rest of the world. And, um, you know, America first, essentially. And pull out from NATO, pull the oars in, right? Pull out from NATO and those types of structures. Yes. And I think, I think it's naive only because it simply creates a vacuum for other actors in the world to assume a bigger role. And so, again, I don't think America should be the global police that intervenes in every conflict. That's gone too far in the other direction. But I think we have to, uh, I think we should not be shy about wanting to stay a superpower. And it's not because we're better people than others in the rest of the world. It's that we have a better system, right? We, we have a democracy had democracy for, you know, 250 years, which means that, and we have a free, we have freedom of the press and our system virtually guarantees that human rights abuses come to light, that the media reports things and, you know, the citizens have some say in what goes on. And that's just not true in Russia and China. And it means that it's more moral for us to, to be the global superpower because we end up making decisions that are on net better. So 
you know, I don't know what the exact path is to prevent this from happening, but um, it definitely is a worry of mine. One of the things that does seem to be fascinating that is problematic within that polarization is this sort of separation between individualism, you know, this very sometimes extreme focus on sovereignty and individualistic tendencies and rights and, and freedoms. And then on the other side, the community, right, that, that the community should have say and sway over the individual, right, that governments and systems should have the right. And that seems to be showing up like in our school systems as an example, right, where parents' capacity or ability to say what they want their child to learn or not learn within an education system, um, there, there seems to be a good amount of <laughs> warring, I guess we could say, around that. What's your take on that sort of battle between the individualistic aspects of democracy and the communal aspects of of democracy? Because it seems like for a long time that cohabitation has been incredibly important. So how would you form the problem or the sort of like adversary nature of what's happening between those two those two stances? Yeah, well there's yeah, there's a lot going on with parents versus schools at this time. And, you know, I think the basic problem is this. Teachers are something like 85% Democrat, like teachers as a profession. Now that's, that's interesting and, and kind of shocking. And, and predominantly women as well. Yeah. But, but what that means is, you know, parents almost by definition are roughly 50-50, right? I, that, that could be could be off by something, but it's, you know, it's nowhere close to the political profile of teachers. And so basically you have a problem where they're just, there's just lots of school districts where the teachers want to teach things that are more left wing than the parents want their children to be taught all over the country. So this is a problem. And, you know, at its best is a problem that should be solved by parents going to their local board meetings and local face-to-face conversation exchange um, and so forth and parents talking to teachers and reaching compromise solutions. And in theory, that's the best way for it to work. Not some kind of like heavy handed anti CRT laws. I think those, those things tend to overly broad laws that can end up banning a lot of good things as well as banning bad ideas. I think those tend not to work very well. But ideally, you want this to be solved at, at a local level and each place can reach an equilibrium that it's happy with, right? Because America is a very diverse country, culturally, politically, et cetera. Part of the problem with that is that we live in an age of cancel culture and a lot of parents, they don't want to go to their school meeting and talk about how, you know, like I have a friend who who lives in Westchester and his like eight or nine year old son had a lesson on culture. The topic of the day was culture. And like, I kid you not, like 80% of the lesson was about different black African-American hairstyles. Mm. I was like, hmm, okay. A page or two on that might've been warranted. But if we're talking about just like global cultural diversity, isn't it a bit weird for 80% of the lesson to be on one subculture of one country and specifically the hairstyles that we like? That seems like excessive and it seems like it seems like that is someone that is trying to push a kind of political ideology essentially on the students, which is like 
centering blackness, right? That's like a, a phrase that would be used at, you know, Columbia's Teachers College or, or a very hyper left-wing, hyper woke space. How do you complain about that as a parent, especially as a white parent? You go to your teacher's board and say, hey, I think there's too much, uh, there's too much black stuff in the curriculum. Well, what if someone's filming you? What if that film ends up on Twitter and now you have thousands of people calling you a racist and now your boss says, look, uh, we just can't deal with this heat. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. That type of stuff has happened in the past few years and it doesn't have to happen that many times for it to create a, a chilling effect on speech. And so cancel culture and social media and smartphones have interfered with what would be the best and natural process by which to resolve these kind of political disagreements at the local level. So what you're saying is with the education specific education system specifically that one of the best routes is going to your local your local governing body and education body and being able to have those conversations with people but that is largely getting shut down. Is that accurate? Yeah, that well people are afraid to do it for reasons that are understandable and and they wouldn't have been afraid in the year 2007, say. Where would you say that CRT fits into the, the equation? Because that seems to be a point of contention for a lot of parents. Um, it seems to be a, a point within the education system that has become very political. Maybe just opening up dialogue to you to kind of get a sense of like, maybe not necessarily your stance on that, but how how can we approach that conversation? Well, yeah, I think um, critical race theory, is, it's so funny. I, I was reading a lot about critical race theory a few years ago. And I was writing a book proposal at the time. And I remember the publisher said, well, all this critical race theory stuff, I don't think anyone's going to be interested in it. And then cut <laughs> to a few years later, it's all anyone can talk about. So they missed, they missed the mark. Yeah. <laughs> Look, yeah. Like, like I said, the problem is there are ideological teachers coming out of hyper left-wing colleges where they've been taught that whiteness is bad Whiteness is evil. White supremacy culture pervades society. All of the American, all of the typical American principles like freedom of speech, free markets, meritocracy, objectivity, these are all products of white supremacy. And when you go into teach, you have to ditch all of them. There are people being taught this stuff. It's pretty fringe. A lot of your listeners may just like never have heard of it in their own lives. But if you go to like Columbia's teachers, Columbia Teachers College or, or really many teachers colleges, you're going to be taught this stuff. And uh, this stuff comes straight out of critical race theory. Uh, it's, it's basically the thesis of critical race theory. And then certain teachers feel that they should inflect that into the way that they teach in the classroom. Now, are they teaching actual critical race theory tests? Are they a text? Are they whipping out Kimberly Crenshaw's you know, academic papers from the eighties. No, but that's, I think that's a, that's an unconvincing critique that there's a problem. There is a problem, which is that teachers are diluting that into digestible lessons for kids. And what do you do about that as a parent? I, as a parent, I would not want my kid who is, you know, very likely going to be black or of color in some capacity. And uh, I don't want them going to school and being made to think about their race and the race of their classmates at a young age, because I grew up in a very racially diverse environment 
And as a half black, half Puerto Rican kid, I had black friends, white friends, Jewish friends, Hispanic friends, et cetera. I never thought of their race. And I think that racial innocence is important to protect because Mm. kids are not naturally racist until they get exposed to the toxic adult world of racism. I think it's very important to protect that racial innocence in the same way that we protect kids' sexual innocence. And so there is a kind of teacher coming out of these activist spaces that wants to inject the activism into the classroom. And so how do you fight that? Well, one way to fight that is to create laws saying you cannot teach kids anything that makes them feel guilty because of their race or, or so forth. Now, it's like, that's, that's, that's very dangerous because a lot of things might make a kid feel guilty because of their race. And I, I use this example because these laws have actually been passed. Uh, and then you have teachers saying, okay, you're censoring my ideas. You're censoring, like, how, how do I even teach history without possibly making anyone feel bad? Sometimes learning history makes you feel bad, right? And then it's, um, and then that's overly broad. So how do, we, how do we address this problem without writing, without trying to write ideas out of the classroom? It's a difficult, almost impossible thing to do. So it's a, it's a tough question. Can we go down this pathway a little further? Because I think this is fascinating and it's interesting to get your take. I mean, I thought about like my son is one third Lebanese, but he's got blonde hair, green eyes. You know, it doesn't doesn't look like he's Lebanese at all. <laughs> um, and it's an interesting conundrum to think about, you know, him going into school and learning about dividing himself. And then he's, you know, he's like, 20, I mean, not 20, but like a dozen other ethnicities, right? Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to think about him going into school and sort of subdividing his identity based on his background and race and ethnicity. So you were sort of saying that there's a thesis around CRT. What would you say that that thesis is? The thesis of CRT is that all of the principles we think of as race neutral, like meritocracy, like markets, like freedom of speech, like the rule of law. These are not neutral, but they are actually white supremacy in disguise. So there's no such thing as as race neutrality. There's no such thing as a race neutral set of rules by which a society, our society, can live by. So we must reject all of those things which appear to be race neutral. We must reject rule of law, free speech, markets, etc. And essentially substitute as black people, we must substitute like our own set of particular unique values and simply take political power to the extent that we can. That's the thesis of critical race theory in a nutshell. Interesting. Okay. Whereas whereas the thesis of the civil rights movement was more or less to affirm all of those principles. Yes, rule of law is good. Yes, you know, free speech. Yes, democracy, etc. But black people have been excluded from them. So include us. Include us in fundamentally good system of American democracy. That was the thesis of the civil rights movement. The thesis of CRT, which came after that, was actually no. The civil rights movement's diagnosis was importantly wrong. All those principles are actually bad. They're white supremacist principles by nature. 
So we need to dismantle them and substitute a kind of black version, which will be based on different principles. Can you steel man the perspective? Because this is, uh, we're just, we're just going to play with this for a second and see where it takes us. Can you steel man the perspective that something like free speech or freedom of speech is inherently racist or white supremacist? So if I were to argue that, it's, it, you know, I would just point to the fact that racists today are protected by free speech laws. Right. Like if you want to be a Richard Spencer or, you know, a David Duke and say what you want to say about black people and so forth, what's protecting your right to say those things is freedom of speech. Otherwise, we would be able and, you know, I would say what I would say if I was someone who agreed with this take, which I don't, is that speech hurts black people. It hurts people of color and Freedom of speech allows racists to continue hurting, harming people of color with their speech. And, and that's what free speech is all about. That's what they think. Mm. I was going to ask like an arbitrary, on an arbitrary scale, but how important would you say that free, freedom of speech and free speech actually is in America? I think it's the backbone of what makes America great. Look, the civil rights movement would not have happened in a country without free speech, right? It's, it's not an accident that America had a civil rights movement. What protected people like Martin Luther King, Bayard Rustin, A. Philip Randolph, and so forth, is that our First Amendment says the government cannot imprison them for what they're saying, right? Absent that, you know, their message was very divisive at that time, and they had lots of enemies. If you lived in a country where you could just imprison and exile inconvenient people, then it would just be like Tiananmen Square in China, right? Like the civil rights movement would have been Tiananmen Square and we'd never have heard about it again. James Baldwin would have been, would have been done. Ida B. Wells, the most important anti-lynching activist in American history, her newspaper, she called the Memphis Free Speech. I don't think that that's an accident. I think it's because free speech was the only principle protecting someone like her to the extent that it did. And again, it's, it has not operated perfectly, but can you imagine how much worse it would have been if we didn't have a free speech principle for civil rights activists, for socialists and communists in the 40s and 50s, um, for any dissidents of, of any kind, for, for uh, Vietnam dissidents? I mean, in some way, you, you simply have to ask the question, what would American history have looked like for minorities, for people of color, for women, etc., if we had no First Amendment? And the question just answers itself. So to ditch the principle now because some of those battles have been won is extraordinarily short-sighted. We have no idea how things will evolve in the next 50 to 100 years. And to say, well, free speech has been good when it protected us, and now that it's protecting alt-right assholes, let's just get rid of it. That's exactly the wrong position because it fails to account for, just from a self-interested point of view, it fails to account for how deeply things can change and always do change. I mean, I'm loving talking to you, so this is great. (laughs) I just had like 18 different questions sprout out as you were talking. What would you say that the notion that freedom of speech is inherently racist or is sort of steeped in 
white supremacy, like what are the roots of that? Where does that come from? Are there certain people that have been espousing that idea and, and sort of pushing that and bringing that into fringe culture and the mainstream culture? Like what, what's that rooted in? So basically, um, I think there's a, there's a term for this that I'm, that I'm now forgetting, but there are all free speech is always under attack. It's been under attack throughout all of American history. At any point in time, you can find people say, saying, actually, we should, shut, we should shut those voices down. And the people saying that are always the people who have cultural power, right? The people who have cultural power in any given moment, they always want to silence their critics. It's like a human nature tendency mm. in every society on earth. The concept of letting other people speak and letting everyone have an opinion, that's pretty actually rare. More common is to say they're the enemy. We have more power. Let's freaking kill them or throw them in prison. So essentially, the, the people that have cultural power always want to get rid of free speech. McCarthyists essentially wanted to get rid of free speech because of the threat of communism. You know, uh, the slaveholders wanted to get rid of free speech for, for abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass because, you know, they were threatened. Who has cultural power today? In some way, you can always see who has cultural power by who is trying to get rid of free speech, right? Because they're assuming getting rid of it will benefit them. They're assuming they won't be thrown in prison or canceled or have their lives destroyed. So the people calling to get rid of free speech are quite often, almost always the ones with the cultural power who would benefit from such a change. And in the year, you know, 2023, that happens to be because of recent changes in, in American history and culture that happens to predominantly be people with liberal views on issues like race and gender, right? Like, for example, to give one example, I may get the facts slightly wrong here, but Abigail Schreier, who wrote a book critical of trans activist ideology, her, I think the marketing campaign on Amazon, it was suspended, like her book was suspended for a little while and I think it was, it may also have been taken off of the Target website, right? And it's not bigotry screed by any, by any, it's a journalistic account of how certain young teen girls are um, suffering from rapid onset gender dysphoria and quickly moving into tran medical transitions that they potentially later regret. And it's like happening within groups, right? Like she yeah. specifically does research around how it's like happening in clusters, essentially, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Which you would not expect if it was, which, which, is, which suggests a social contagion element. Anyway, that's her thesis. Agree with it or don't, that's her thesis. Generally, you're allowed to write a book with a thesis about society and it doesn't get like taken off major booksellers, even if it's like crazy, right? There are thousands of crazy, horrible, vicious arguments in books. They never get taken down. On the other hand, if you were a pro, uh, like a very left-wing pro-trans activist, you, there's no book you could write crazy enough to get it removed from the Target website at this moment. It just, it wouldn't happen. So what does that say about cultural power at this moment? I'm not talking about political power. I'm not talking about um, who has money or who is, is in the halls of Congress. Those are different questions, important questions, but different one. I'm talking about who has sort of power at a lot of elite American institutions, corporate institutions. Right now, that power skews a bit to the left. And so 
it's no accident that you see mostly people on the left saying uh, attacking free speech. That's a very interesting way to put it, and I, I appreciate that because I think that pieces some things together for me that I've that I've wondered about. It does seem like we've entered into this space where advocacy has turned in has been weaponized. You know, like I, I made a post the other day talking about. I'm on this mission to be, I turned 40 in November. And so part of what I wanted to do was try and get into the best shape of my life by 40. And it just seemed like a good goal for me to set. And so I'd made a post about body image and how 40% of men struggle with body image and how that was something that growing up, you know, at one point um, I was like 245 pounds and I didn't really like the way that I body, wow. my body looked. I was a little overweight, et cetera. And I started to, to talk about how really getting into, you know, keeping care of my body and working out five, five, six times a week and eating healthy has been incredibly rewarding. And it's changed and altered the way that I view my body. And I was, I mean, maybe I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was a little surprised at how many people were messaging me being like, oh, this is, you know, toxic body positivity and this is so unhealthy. And I mean, I, you know, all I was saying was I've enjoyed working out and eating healthy. Was it, uh, was it mostly men or women? It was mostly women. Hmm. And were they like women in your audience or just like internet strangers? A little bit of both. Yeah. A little bit of both. Yeah. And what I, what I noticed is that it was like a little bit of, um, tagging, like anytime that I have a controversial post, uh, like about a year and a half, two years ago, I put a post up that's like I said, I, you know, I, I'm not sorry for being a man or something about something along those lines. Like, and, I, yeah. and that, I mean, that just garnered a tremendous amount of hate and, and ferocity, mm-hmm. um, which was really interesting to see, but it does seem like we've entered into this space where people, and I'm not really too sure how to frame this, but I've had this, I've been trying to write about something that I've called the hierarchy of suffering. And the notion is that when we feel like we don't have power in our lives, what we end up trying to do is leveraging our own suffering, our own victimhood, our own misfortunes as a means of trying to regain power relationally and socially. Whether that's within our intimate relationships with our partner, because we, I mean, my wife is a marriage and family therapist and we work with couples all the time and I see this happening where one person feels like they're at the whim of the other person mm. and how they'll try and regain a sense of balance within the relationship, within the power structure of the relationship is by using how bad they have things in order to try and regain a sense of quote unquote equality within the relationship. And it almost seems like systemically moving out into the structures of our, of our society that that's happening on a cultural level where the sense of how bad I have it has become a tool to gain social acceptance or, or power. Um, yeah. So what's, what's your thought on that? Like what's the, what's the intersection between how do we help people who really have been victimized and maybe have not been supported by the systems, but at the same time not fall prey to allowing certain behaviors of leveraging and, and sort of feigning being the victim to sort of take over. Like, what's your thought on that? I can't remember who is that wrote this book, but it was a great book a couple of years ago, which argued that in the same way, many places in the world have an honor culture. We are developing a victimhood culture. 
Mm-mm. a culture where you have social clout in proportion to how much you've been victimized or really how much you can convince people you've been victimized. And that comes from a noble urge to want to, to want to recognize the ways, ways in which people have suffered and the ways in which people have been unlucky and underprivileged and disadvantaged. And then it's, it's taken to such an extreme where people feel that the only way that they can be cool, that they can have social status is to show you how hard they have it, right? I mean, this was definitely, to some extent, the case at Columbia and, and Barnard, Columbia, where I spent four years, they're basically uh, the same social pool. When you're there, everyone hangs out with everyone. But it, it's like, yeah, like you, insofar as you can, you can be, you convince people that you are like a downtrodden, uh, you know, I'm a black trans one-armed female with, you know, et cetera, like oppression Olympics, you will actually get opportunities. Like you will rise. People will know your name. You will, people will know who you are. And that's what we all want. We want recognition. We want social status in some way. I think, I think most people want that even more than they want money. So what that creates is it now creates an incentive for everyone to play up the aspects of themselves that are disadvantaged. And that's why you get, I mean, like we live in an era of fake hate crimes. People will perpetrate fake hate crimes on themselves because they know if they, if they succeed, then that's an instant path to status and, and clout, right? And it's not just Jesse Smollett. It's, you know, people, Jesse Smollett is at one end of a spectrum of being willing to like totally manufacture bullshit in order to gain social status and help his career and so forth. But there are people much, there are people on that spectrum, but just not all the way there. People that will just exaggerate things and leave out parts of their life story so as to come across more like a victim. And there's a whole book my friend Wilfred, Wilfred Riley wrote about hate crime hoaxes. I mean, they happen a lot more often than, than you might think. And uh, that's a direct consequence of this victimhood culture. There's nothing wrong with, like, if you've actually been victimized by something, you should make that known so that people in your life can help you. Absolutely. But the goal should be for that state of victimhood to be a temporary status right? A temporary bat signal to the world that I need help right now. And then when the help is achieved, you go back to pre-victim status. The thing now is that people view victimhood as a permanent desirable state of affairs. It should be temporary, ideally. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's interesting because a lot of this has always been a very fine line. Like a lot of the work that my organization does is with men who have, you know, they're they're going through a divorce. They've experienced sexual abuse as a child. They've experienced some type of trauma. You know, lost a parent when they were six or whatever it might be, and dealing with the repercussions of that. You know, and a lot of the times, it's these men have been working through that psychologically, having an abusive stepfather or a neglectful mother or whatever it is, they've been working through that and but but have oftentimes not brought that to light in their life. You know, not many people have known about it. They haven't really dealt with it, et cetera. And 
what's very interesting about what you're saying is that I think what you're saying is is so important is that we do need to have a time and place in our life where we bring that forth and say, you know, maybe I need help dealing with this. Mm-hmm. But the inclination, the psychological inclination to then have that be a cornerstone of our identity, of our personality, is very interesting because the ego would normally not necessarily latch onto it. I always approach things from a very psychological lens. The, the ego would not normally latch onto it unless there was a benefit to it, mm. right? So if we've been victimized in some way, our ego is going to want to maybe process that and understand how it might be disrupting our identity and our persona for a period of time. And that can be very beneficial for self-understanding to then be able to move back into your relationships and your work environment and then come back uh, you know, and, and have a, a more cohesive sense of self and self-structure. But the ego would normally not latch on to something catastrophic like that unless there was a benefit. And I think what's important about what you're saying is that we've entered into a cultural space where we do benefit from holding on to that as a cornerstone of our identity. And that can be detrimental for a number of reasons, which we don't necessarily need to go into right now. But <laughs> you've, you've talked a little bit about... Um, I, I watched a couple of your videos talking about colorblindness or, or race blind and moving towards a race blind society. And uh, I thought it was very interesting to hear you talk about that. And just at you know, the beginning of this conversation, talking about racial innocence, which I couldn't help but feel a sense, almost like a sigh of relief in some way from, from hearing that, which is, which is interesting. I mean, I grew up in Northern Alberta in Canada and, you know, there's, a little bit of diversity. So I think it was a very different experience than growing up in America for a number of reasons. But can you define for the listener what you mean by race-blind or colorblind society? Because I've heard a lot of commentary about how being colorblind is akin to to racist, like it is blatant racism. Yeah. So what I mean by colorblindness is I try to treat people without regard to race, both in my personal life and in my public policy, in the public policies that I want to see enacted. There is this idea that that's akin to racism, that either it's naive or it's, we're not ready for it as a society, or it's actually white supremacy in disguise. But you know, my argument is in the same way that we aim for a peaceful society, right? we, have, we, we all know what we want in terms of our attitude towards violence, right? We want to have a more peaceful society. We'll never fully get there, right? But we know what our North Star is and what and when we're going closer and when we're going further. Colorblindness should be that North Star with regard to race, right? If we're getting more and more obsessed with our racial identities and seeing race more and more, that's getting further from the goal. So that's one thing I would just say there. Secondly, uh, there's this idea that colorblindness is inherently a conservative idea because conservatives happen to like it more than liberals right now, at least to some extent. Really, colorblindness comes from the anti-slavery movement. The earliest mentions of colorblindness come from Wendell Phillips, who was advocating for a colorblind government in 1865, using that word specifically. And he was the president of the most important anti-slavery organization in the country. And it, it was a colorblind legal regime was the 
is the goal of the original March on Washington movement run by A. Philip Randolph and by the NAACP throughout the 1960s, right? A colorblind legal and political regime where with no policies that mention, even mention race. So it was, uh, it's not, it does not come from conservatives or racists or reactionaries. It's basically that uh, liberals kind of abandoned the idea in the 70s and I'm trying to revive it. I think that it's, it's the best policy and best principle by which to govern a multiracial society. I think it's the best way to lower the temperature of racial conflict, conflict in the long run. And, uh, and that's why I'm, I want to rehabilitate the image of colorblindness for people. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting because I remember being a kid and my parents, you know, really advocating for me to be curious about other people's culture and hearing that notion of, you know, not seeing race, not seeing ethnicity and getting curious about the differences of, of like people's heritage. And I think that there's, there's certainly room for that. And I think that that's what brings us together in, in some fashion is like, we need to be able to understand those differences. I also think about, again, I, I always approach things psychologically that when we create so much resistance towards something, we create more of the thing. So like when somebody is dealing with anxiety, for example, if I'm working with a client and he's got a tremendous amount of anxiety, the more that he's fixating on disliking that anxiety and seeing it as problematic and, and focusing on it, the more that it actually manif- manifests and builds and, and breeds itself within his own psyche. And it seems to me that like America keeps trying to use this same tactic, you know, this sort of psychological tactic, like the war on drugs has unequivocally produced more drug problems. You know, it's like, it hasn't gotten better. (laughs) Fentanyl deaths are not decreasing in America. And the, you know, the, the war on drugs back in the nineties and uh, eighties and nineties, you know, it, it didn't necessarily help. And so that approach of, viewing something as hateful and despiseful and and then trying to sort of like systematically root it out or cut it out from society almost seems to implement it more. You know, I, I, again, the last thing I'll say is I see this happening with like toxic masculinity. That term gets thrown around so much. And I've always taken the approach of, you know, that that has probably done more harm than good the amount of men that hear toxic masculinity and are like, well, maybe repulsed is too strong a word, but almost close off to any kind of conversation about how maybe certain archetypes or or tenets of masculinity might not be helping, Mm -hmm. um, but simply because they're being told you're toxic or being masculine is toxic or being a man is toxic or whatever it is shuts down the conversation and, and seems to perpetrate or, or um, actually create more of the thing that people are advocating against. Is that something that you see or agree with, like this sort of going to war on racism, maybe not necessarily creating more racism, but, but having an adverse effect on the conversation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in 2020 and 21, especially, and even before that, people really overdid race fixation. Uh, they, they overdid the notion that you should approach me in a particular way because I happen to be black and you happen to be white. I don't know if you read any of the 
best-selling literature of the past like four years or so. But if you read White Fragility, White Fragility, which was the the best-selling, I think the probably the single best-selling race book of the past four years, at least. Like she has a set of rules for how white people are supposed to talk to black people. And those set of rules are that you're not supposed to withdraw. You're not supposed to argue back. You're not supposed to remain silent. You're not supposed to basically everything except vocally agreeing with me would be off limits because you happen to be white and I happen to be black. Now, look, I think that's not really a great way to create a good connection of equals between people. And, um, and it also just like, it encourages you to approach me as a black guy instead of Coleman, which I don't think is good. I think that, and it it encourages me to approach you as a white guy, right? Instead of your unique individual flavor of, of human personality and experience. Strange and weirdness. Yeah. Which is, where all the interesting stuff in life is, all the interesting friendships and relationships, they always begin with how you're unique, not with, not with how you're a, an interchangeable stereotype of your group, your category. So, I mean, yeah, I, that's what I would say about that. I, do, I, th- I think there's been a backlash to it, a justified backlash to it, because it's not anti-racist. It's it's actually closer to racist than anti-racist. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to put forth like a kind of real anti-racism, a a real anti-racism based on common humanity and the principles of the civil rights movement, essentially. So that's what I'm trying to do in my book to that effect will come out probably next February. Well, I think that's probably a good place to pause. And um, I look forward to reading your book. I look forward to having you back on the show if you're up for it to talk about it sure, uh, and go deeper into that subject matter because I've really enjoyed our conversation today. We'll have the links in the show notes to your work, your channel, your website. uh, But for anybody that wants to go learn more about you and and what you're doing and the conversations that you're having, where, where can they go? Where can they find you? You can listen to my podcast, Conversations with Coleman, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wonderful. Well, Coleman, thank you so much for joining me. For everybody else that's out there listening to this, make sure that you man it forward, share this conversation with somebody that you know will enjoy it. And as always, until next week, this is Connor Bean signing off. 